Well, good morning, Branch Church. Good morning, Branch Church Online. We're glad you're all with us this morning. It is a blessing. My name is Pastor Sean. If I haven't had a chance to meet you, it is so great to be with you as we continue our worship now through the hearing of God's word. We as human beings are touched when we see somebody else give up something that is theirs for the sake of somebody else. There was a gentleman that I knew. He just got a brand new pair of running shoes. <laughs> he was pretty excited about these. It was his first pair in like seven years. And so one of the first things he does is he gets on the bike and he rides around, stops at the park near his house and decides he's going to use some of the workout equipment that is there. And so he's doing, you know, calisthenics, pull-ups, dips, stuff like that. And in the middle of one of his pull-up sets, a homeless man strolls up into the park and sits across from him, not too far. And so he starts up a conversation, how's it going? And he looks down and he sees the man's shoes and they're just wretched. The front of him looks like a cartoon face that could talk to you as he walks. I don't know if the heels were that bad, but the front, it was just so bad. And so he was moved in his heart and he says, hey, what size shoe do you wear? He says, I'd like to give you my shoes. So he takes off his shoes, he gives them, praise the Lord, they fit. And there was actually another guy there watching. He's like, you're good peeps, man, you're good peeps. And so that gentleman, he leaves the park, he gets on his bike without any shoes and he rides all the way home. We are moved when people give up what is theirs for the sake of other people. And no greater movement can happen, has happened, than when the son of God came to this earth and did the things that he has done. Don't turn there yet, but listen to this verse, 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 9. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, he became poor. Though he was rich, he became poor so that you by his poorness might become rich. This morning, as we continue our series called Becoming Christ, we are gonna look at how the Christ, I'm sorry, how the son of God became poor in order to be our Messiah that God sent, the one that we absolutely needed. And as we look at this topic this morning, we are gonna learn the following, that the son of God, he set aside his heavenly glory so that he could give you salvation glory. If you have your Bibles, turn with me, please. Second Corinthians chapter eight, verse nine. This is our main text this morning. This text will be divided up into three parts. We will keep coming back to it. Hopefully by the end, you will memorize it. And in between, we will look at other verses that highlight even deeper that part of this text. This is exciting. I've been wanting to talk about this text for at least a year, maybe two. And here we are finally in 2023, we get to do it together. Second Corinthians chapter eight, verse nine. Paul writes and he says this, for you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake, he became poor so that you by his poverty might become rich. Before we talk about what the son of God became in his poorness, we have to understand what he was in his richness. What does it mean to say that the son of God was rich? Is this material prosperity? Is this wealth? Is this diamond? Is this money? Is this gems? I don't think that's the case here. I think richness describes something else. I think it speaks of his status, his royal status, his heavenly, royal, glorious status that was his with the father before all time began. In one word, it speaks of his 
majesty. Majesty is not a word that we use very often today, but it is entirely appropriate for this morning and for understanding this richness that belong to the Son of God. Now, what is majesty? There's kind of two parts of this definition. I'm gonna give you both parts and then I'm gonna smash it together into one and then I'm gonna simplify it and drip out a little bit of coffee so it's really easy to digest. (laughs) Majesty, what is majesty? Majesty speaks on the one hand of something that is beautiful. It is so beautiful that you see it and you're just all inspired by it. I always use the, the illustration that when you see something and you're in awe of it, you lose your breath. It's like somebody punches you in the gut. Oh, that's just so great. I lost my breath. We might think of a sunset. You might be driving home, pull over and go, wow, that is beautiful and awe-inspiring. It's majestic. That's one side of, of majesty. The other side of majesty speaks of something of high status, something that is highly exalted in position. We might think of a king or an emperor and we look at them and their status is king and where they're sitting and all the people around them and go, wow, they are really exalted in their position before everybody else. Okay, we put those together. What do we have? Majesty speaks of something or someone that is highly exalted in status or position. And it also has this awe-inspiring beauty where you respond and go, wow, you're just amazing. You're majestic. All that together, ready? We're gonna drip it down to one word. It speaks of that which is impressive. Majesty speaks of that which is weighty and impressive. Impressive is something that stamps deeply in your mind. And that which stamps deeply in your mind, you do not soon forget it. I want you to turn with me to a few verses in the Psalms. Go to Psalm 96, verse six. I wanna show you, I want you to read firsthand what the Bible says about the majesty, the status, the impressive glory that is the Lord God Almighty. Psalm 96, verse six. The psalmist writes and says this, splendor and majesty are before him. Strength and beauty are in his sanctuary. When you think of God's presence, what is before him in his presence? There is a majesty. There is a majestic, awe-inspiring beauty and a high exalted status in his presence. I want you to go with me now, please, to Psalm 104, verse 1. Psalm 104, verse one. It says this, bless the Lord, O my soul. O Lord, my God, you are very great. You are clothed with splendor and majesty, covering yourself as light with light as with a garment, stretching out the heavens like a tent. Not just before God in his presence is their majesty. God is actually clothed with it. He's impressive in the very clothing in which he wears. We're going to come back to that in a minute and explain what that means. Go with me now to Psalm 148, verse 13. Psalm 148, verse 13. It says this, let them praise the name of the Lord for his name alone is exalted. His majesty is above earth in heaven. God's presence is majestic. God's clothes are majestic. God is so majestic that the earth and heaven, all of creation can't handle it. It is above, it is greater than all the things he's created. 
Two more. Go with me. Actually, three more. Go to Psalm 8. Psalm chapter 8, verse 1. He says this, O Lord, our Lord, O Yahweh, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens, not just God's presence, not just God's clothes and position, not just him above all creation, but his very name is majestic. Did you believe there's more? Go to Psalm 29, verse four. a great little quick word study on majesty. So much fun. Psalm 29, verse four. He says, the voice of the Lord is powerful. The voice of the Lord is full of majesty. God's name is majestic. God's very voice is majestic. Now I want you to go with me one more time here in the Psalms, Psalm 93, verse one. We are gonna sit on this one and unpack it a little bit so we can understand God and his majesty. Psalm 93, Verse one, the psalmist writes and he says this, the Lord reigns. He is robed in majesty. The Lord is robed. He has put on strength as his belt. Yes, the world is established. It shall never be moved. This verse says that he is robed in majesty. Literally in the Hebrew, it says it like this, majesty he is clothed with. What does it mean to say that God is clothed with majesty? At the very least, it says two things. One, it says that he impressively is king. God impressively is king. I want you to think of a scale. One of those where you can put an object on either side and weigh it in comparison. On this side of the scale, I want you to think of the most impressive people you can think of. I want the smartest, the wisest. We'll throw Dr. Chuck Allers on there. <laughs> I want you to think of the most wonderful, high status, full of glory. I, I want you to throw them all on this side. I want, I want everything about them, their position, their money, their wealth, everything that they have, put it on this side of the scale. Would that be impressive to see that? <laughs> <laughs> I think it would be. I think it would be. There's a lot there to look at and go, wow, that's a lot of status or stuff or glory. Now, here's what I want you to do. I want you to take all of the kings, governors, presidents, monarchs around the world, and I want you to add them onto this side. Make sure they're all there. Is that impressive? Yeah, there's a lot there. Here's what I want you to do now. Go in history. Go in your time machine, and I want you to get every impressive person there is. I want the pharaohs. I want the kings. I want the governors. I want the, the prefects. You get them all on this side of the scale. Would this be impressive And all of the majesty and glory that is theirs? I think it would be. Remember years ago, that show called Cribs? Celebrities would invite the camera in and you could check out their house. You could see how cool their refrigerator is. Their ginormous living rooms and couches. Their 25 cars, which they probably don't drive all of them. You got to see their pool, which was so big. It was like pretty much a lake. I mean, dramatic, but you get the idea. Throw all that, all the Cribs on this side. Would that be impressive? Yeah, there's a lot there. We would want to watch that. At least we'd probably want to know like, what's going on. Now, here's what I want you to do. I want you to go to the other side of the scale and I want you to see the Lord and his majesty on this side of the scale and answer this question. What just happened? This side of the scale, the Lord's majesty just became a 10 trillion pound boulder next to a tiny pebble. 
Actually, you know what? I was, I'm wrong. That's not even true. I think God's majesty just crushed the scale and there is no scale. There is no scale. There's, there's no true comparison. The Lord in his presence, his position above the earth, his name, his voice, he is full of high, incredible, glorious, impressive status. There's nothing in comparison. We can't even look at the sun very long without it hurting our eyes. How much more the one who created the sun and is full of majesty down to his very words in which he speaks. How does the Lord go about communicating such glory to us with finite human minds? How do, how do you communicate all that? I think you probably got to use the best known colors, gems, the most vivid language we have available on earth. This happened in Ezekiel 1. I want to give you an example here. Ezekiel is in exile, I believe by the Kabar River. And God shows up to his people in exile. And there's a storm cloud. Out of the storm cloud comes the most vivid imagery and the most incredible picture teaching them something amazing about God. There's this molten metal, there's this fire. And then they see this picture. I want you to see this picture on the screen. Is it there? There it is. I'm gonna describe this picture to you. This is a, a, a rendering of what it looks like. Ezekiel starts with the creatures. There's these four living creatures and they have four different faces, which are going to represent all of creation, humans and animals. God is over all of creation. And these guys, they have bodies like burning coals, like fiery torches. They're going back and forth. And then Ezekiel moves to these wheels, these wheels. And you have wheels within a wheels. It's this color of barrel, which could be a color. It could be more translucent. It's hard to exactly know, but it's impressive. These wheels picture God's ability to be omnipresent, to be everywhere on the earth. It's like wheels. And then you go up and you see this platform. This is the floor of heaven. It is ice crystal. It's this ice crystal see-through kind of a thing. And then on top of it, you have a throne made entirely of lapis lazuli or sapphire, which is an eye popping blue of all the fire and the brightness and then the crystal see-through kind of ice, you go up, where are your eyes drawn? To this throne, this eye-popping, beautiful, one of the most precious gems known in the ancient times, made of this. And then on the throne, you have this figure, which appears of fire, multi-metal, there's a rainbow. What does all of this imagery say? God reigns in impressive majesty. And he does so over the exiles, even though they're not in Jerusalem. He's over all of creation. He's everywhere in creation as the will specify and his throne, he's the only one sitting up there ruling over everything. How impressive is our Lord? That's the first thing that this Psalm 93, he's closed with majesty. This is the first thing it speaks of. He's impressively king. The second thing Psalm 93 speaks of is that he intends to reign as king. When God puts on majesty, he's not playing dress up. He's not going to a Halloween party. This is not for fun. He's telling the world, I am king and I'm very intently and seriously going to act like king in this world. Put all this together, going back to our verse, although he was rich. The son of God was rich in this type of majesty that I'm telling you right now. So before we can get to what he became, you have to feel the weight of the son of God and his impressive glory. How awe-inspiring, beautiful, the high exalted status that he was. And then what did he do? 
He became poor. Go with me back to 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 9. 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 9. We're moving to the second part of this verse now. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich in heavenly glory, splendor, impressive majesty, yet for your sake, he became what? He became poor. What does that mean? Does that mean he emptied his bank account? He got rid of all his wealth. Not exactly. Poorness here speaks of the son of God surrendering that heavenly glory that majesty we've been talking about for the last 10 minutes or so. The son of God willingly, voluntarily set aside that majesty, that glory. He took off his crown, untied his robe. He stepped off of the throne of heaven and he came down to earth, born as a human being to rescue us from our sins. Christmas time is an incredible time to remember one of the greatest miracles, if not the greatest miracle in the Bible, of God becoming flesh and of giving up all of that to come and save us. We've probably, uh, you've probably heard or seen pictures of bread lines in history. Really sad state where people are needing the basic necessities of food to survive. Have you ever seen a governor of a state in a bread line? Have you ever seen a president or a monarch of an Arab nation stand in a bread line? Maybe I've never seen one. Can you imagine if they did show up to a bread line? They'd probably be mobbed. Oh, what are you doing here? Help us, give us, we need, and so forth. And then can you imagine if that king, president, governor, or monarch, whatever they are, said stop, and they took off their crown, they took off their robe, they put on a common garment, and then they got in line and started begging for bread along with everybody else. What are you doing? What are you doing? Why would you give all that up so you can stand in line with the rest of us? That makes no sense, but it does in terms of God's salvation plan to rescue us from our sins. We're going to look at now a few ways in which the son of God was poor on this earth. Let's look at his birth. Go to Luke chapter two, verse seven. Luke chapter two, verse seven. It says this, and she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the inn. When the son of God was born, he was born in a manger. A manger could be a small box where animal grain was put where they would eat out of. It could be a larger box with hay or even a rack I've even seen some pictures of more of like a stone. And then there's a little dip in the middle where where they would feed the animals. This is where Jesus was born. Very common, we know this. But when you put it together and weigh it, this is incredible. This is no place for a king. There's no kingly comforts here. There's not even normal human comforts. She took her baby and she placed him where animals eat. If you just had a baby in the hospital, and you brought your baby home and you're like, man, my arms are tired, I need a break. And you go to set your baby down so you could get some water. Would you take your baby and put them in the dog dish? That would be unspeakable. If you were at the hospital and the nurse says, let me take your baby for a minute, you go and rest, and then you see them take your baby and put your baby in a dog dish, what would you think? 
you might think child abuse. What are you doing? My kid doesn't belong in a dog dish. He's got more dignity than that. How is it that the son of God came down and was born in one of the poorest ways? He didn't deserve this. He deserved trumpets. He deserved confetti. He deserved way more, a royal welcome, but he didn't come this way. Where do royalty fly? In other words, on what kind of planes do royal people of high status fly on? Private jets. Have you ever seen a king or a governor or a monarch or anyone of that status get on a common plane with common people? You normally don't see that. Now, what if that king, governor, or whatever decided not only to get on a common plane, but then sit under the plane with the rest of the animals? It's unspeakable. It's unthinkable. You would never do that. But that's what Jesus did. He not only got on the common plane with the common people, he went underneath in a sense and sat with the animals. And he was born there below everybody else in one of the poorest ways in which he could have possibly have come. It doesn't make sense, does it? But it does when you understand his mission and his character. He not only was born this way, he also lived in a state of poorness. And I don't mean financial poorness. I mean in appearance and majesty. Go with me to Isaiah chapter 52, 53, verse 2. Isaiah 53, verse 2. One of the great pictures of the Messiah before he came, suffering for the sins of the world. One of the verses here speaks profoundly to our text this morning. Isaiah 53, verse 2. For he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. I want to read that again. He had no form or majesty. You now know what majesty means. There was nothing impressive. There was no high status. There was no position. There was no beauty. There was nothing about the son of God as Jesus in the flesh that drew people and said, wow, you're just so amazing in the way that you appear and look. No, the son of God came and he lived a poor life devoid of that heavenly majesty and glory that was his. When you go out in public, you probably want to look and feel your best. When celebrities go out in public, they want to look and feel their best. Although there are times where they might cover up for a few minutes, right? Because they don't want to be mobbed or they want to get through. But they usually take that off in the car, go home and right back to normal. When Jesus walked the earth, he walked the earth the whole time with no majesty. He was poor the entire time. Now there was one moment on the Mount of Transfiguration where he revealed a glimpse of that glory to the core disciples and they saw him transform right there. That was it. Other than that, from birth to death, he lived a poor status in appearance, no majesty his whole life. That only makes sense if you understand what he was before he became poor. Mark chapter six, verse three. One more we're gonna look at about his life. Mark chapter six, verse three. He not only was born poor, he appeared and lived that way. He also worked that way. Mark chapter six, verse three, is not this the carpenter, the son of Mary and brother of James and Joseph and Judas and Simon and are not his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. I draw your attention here to what they said. Is this not the carpenter? The son of God, exalted in status, created, spoke the world into existence, is now a carpenter. 
The Greek word is tekton. He was a tekton, which normally speaks of people working with wood, but it also can be so much more. It can speak of sculpting, smith. It can speak of stonework. A lot of people think that Jesus wasn't so much a carpenter, but maybe worked with stone because there's a lot more stone in Israel than there is wood. R.T. France, in his commentary, he speaks of a tekton, a carpenter who had to do a lot of things in a small village. You had to know agriculture. You had to be able to build things. You had to be able to fix things. So it seems if you put it all together, Jesus lived this life as kind of a common handyman, a versatile handyman. I love him for to be my handyman. I mean, that's awesome. The one who spoke the universe into existence is now working with his hands to build and to fix and to help people in the most common, simple way in his village, in his neighborhood. It's incredible to think about. There's one more part here. Go back to 2 Corinthians 8, 9. 2 Corinthians 8, 9. There's one more part here to this verse to put it all together. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, how was he rich? Majestic glory. Yet for your sake, he became poor. He set and surrendered all that aside when he became human. And he did it for this reason, so that you by his poverty might become what? So you could become rich. Rich how so? Is this material prosperity? I don't think so. I think this speaks of salvation richness. This speaks of the riches of salvation glory. He set aside his heavenly glory so you could get salvation glory. What glory, what benefits am I talking about? There are so many. You would be born again of the spirit. You would be alive again. You see, you are dead without Christ. Your spirit is dead. The spirit then makes you alive. You are what is called a new creation now. The old has gone. The new has come. You think different. You are different. You desire different. Why? Because God has given you the richness of salvation. Not only that, you're justified, which means you have a right legal standing before God. In God's courtroom, you are 100% good. You are righteous. You're not just right. You see, God could have made you right and said, well, go eat out of the trash can and figure it out. See you later. He didn't do that. What did he do? He adopted you after that. You were not his child before knowing him. You were not under his grace, but by his grace now in Jesus, you have become his child. You are a member of God's family. You have an eternal inheritance in heaven reserved by the power of God, which means nobody can take it from you. And most importantly, you have eternal life which is described by Jesus as what? A relationship with God and knowing the son. When you believe in Jesus, okay, you will come in union with him, in union. And everything that he did, that he accomplished, every problem that he fixed and forgave on your behalf, and now becomes accredited to you. It is yours now into your account. And positionally, you have his position before God. Isn't that amazing? The only way he could be your Christ, he could be your Messiah, was to become poor, die for your sins, raise from the dead, so he could bring you into that union with him, forgive you of your sins, and bring you into a right relationship with God. Can I get a witness? Today, we have been blessed to see that the Son of God set aside his glory, so that way he could give you salvation glory. But don't get him wrong, he's picked it back up again and he reigns in glory with the Father. As we approach Christmas, as we remember the first coming of Christ, remember what he has made you. 
salvation rich. If you don't understand the benefits and the richness of salvation, ask me. Let's get you reading about it because it will transform your life. The gospel of Jesus Christ transforms lives. Remember what he's made you, salvation rich. The Lord is your shepherd. You have everything that you need. But remember also what it cost him, poverty. Let us not just remember this and honor and glorify him. Let us imitate this. Part of the context is that Paul is calling them to give, to complete their giving because of what Christ has done. If Christ has done that, how could I not be generous? How could I not give my shoes or my things or things I can support and give to other people? In this church, we are, you're so generous. Keep it up. This is not an admonishment. It's a good job. Praise God. I'm thankful to know you and stand before you. You were such great givers. Let's continue that generosity, shining the grace of Jesus and his generosity to this world. Amen.